And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm so pleased to once again be sitting opposite Dr. Art Sear, uh, who is the single most frequent guest to the morning show and uh, has been a a, a faithful uh, partner of the morning show for uh, decades now. And I look forward to each and every opportunity to uh, sit down with uh, Dr. Sear and uh, talk about a a host of different uh, topics and issues and concerns. I know that many of you read his columns very, very uh, regularly. They appear in newspapers uh, all across the country, including right here locally in the Kenosha News and Racine Journal Times. And uh, he is also author of the book After the Cold War. And uh, Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, Professor Berg, thank you very much. (laughs) Great to have you here. I think the place we are going to start is actually uh, with the topic of your most recent column, which I don't think has yet been published. I think it's about to be published, but uh, and this is the column that concerns Henry Kissinger, who, of yeah. course, recently passed away at the age of, of 100. And uh, I have to say, I learned a tremendous amount uh, looking at your column uh, about a man whom I thought I understood decently well, but it really is a, a long complicated uh, life and legacy. Yes, indeed. <laughs> At one point you say, uh, Henry Kissinger, master strategist, successful po- a policy leader, dedicated public official, ruthless power player, disciplined author and scholar, relentless publicity seeker. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> that's a really interesting list. And of course, uh, that last part uh, I, I found really, really striking. And you actually don't dwell a lot on that last point. Uh, in your actual column, but I wondered if you would just kind of say a word about Henry Kissinger's relentless uh, appetite for publicity and, and, and at least generally how that tended to play out. He tended, he, a uh, term no, that used to be heard that's no longer heard as far as I can tell uh, at all was dedicated public servant. Hmm. And the image, especially from um, the New Deal, when our government activity expanded tremendously and stakes hmm. were high during the Great Depression and highest during the war, the self-effacing man and woman who served the public good in Washington, D.C., that was kind of the uh, General Marshall, hmm. who certainly was well-known, but not a man who sought publicity. Kissinger was relentless in cultivating the press from a young age. Hmm. His first book was Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy in the 50s, the result of a Council on Foreign Relations study group the, what, what used to be the center of um, tremendous influence in foreign policy until Vietnam in New York. And uh, he, that got him on the cover of Time magazine. That, that does not happen naturally. Mm. It became required reading in the Eisenhower White House. The president was very much aware of him. And um, during the next administration, despite the tremendous pressures Obviously, he had enormous energy. He would spend almost every day, uh, a chunk of the day, dealing with the press and cultivating them. And um, uh, he was not married at that time. He remarried uh, shortly thereafter while he was Secretary of State. I can't remember, but he was uh, he got a lot of publicity, including in the Society pages and the Gossip Columns and uh, Scandal magazines for <laughs> dating a... This uh, older guy dating a wide range of mostly young starlets and mm. actresses and Jill St. John and 
It was pretty, uh, it was a different time, of course. But um, presidents uh, tend to like the self-effacing, dedicated public servant, Nixon, who has a, a very bad reputation, especially on people who circulate in and around public radio and television. Nixon was remarkably tolerant of this. Uh, mm. Nixon was really a complicated character, but he took an amused interest in Henry Kissinger's social life. Richard Nixon ran foreign policy, whatever some of you, our listeners may think. Uh, and he was quite tolerant of Henry um, getting a lot of publicity and taking a lot of credit. Mm, interesting. Yeah, well, we're all complicated, aren't we? And uh, <laughs> I, I'm very, I'm, I, you, you brought up that dimension, so we're talking about it. I'd like to move on to more serious of things. Of course, absolutely. Kissinger had a huge impact on policy. Of just course. Tremendous. And it did, as did Nixon, and it endures. Right. I, I want to actually hone in on something in particular when it comes to the way that Kissinger worked with Nixon. This is something you say in your column. Uh, uh, Henry Kissinger became Nixon's national security advisor. Yeah. And you say Kissinger transformed the position into a powerful center of policy implementation, not just advice. Yeah. Tell us more about exactly in, in what way that was true and how he accomplished that. National security advisor is not in... Uh statute. The National Security Council is, which was part of the tremendous organization and reorganization of the government during and after World War II for dealing with foreign policy. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, military types tended to be the early national security advisors under President Truman. I, I'm sorry if, if I'd known you were going to go this way, I would have done some homework on the NSC. Uh, but uh, it became more structured, much larger and more structured, more formal hmm. under Eisenhower. And he had um, two national security advisors for planning. Gordon Gray, a Republican Boston banker, and Robert Cutler, um, who were in the news. You know, people knew who they were, but again, it was not a faceless but a low-profile position. Mm. Uh, since we're on NPR and given the temper of the times, Bobby Cutler was gay, which was just a fact of life back in those days. Mm. And um, Interesting. It, that was just part of life. Mm. It wasn't politicized and uh, dramatized like today. Uh, those were... Those were they oversaw very very extensive discipline planning under Ike, and there was a general Andrew Goodpaster, who was like Marshall, very much the dedicated public servant, and he took care of implementation of foreign policy. Uh, there was tremendous criticism, especially from academic and intellectual circles, of the um, formal structure under Eisenhower. And basically, in plain English, nothing went wrong for eight years. Hmm which is actually pretty phenomenal in hindsight, and one reason, <laughs> good reason why Ike is seen now as such a great president. Worked like hell, and large numbers of people were working. But we need to be more assertive, more aggressive in the world. Communism was on the march. Today, we, for all our problems and difficulties and crazy activities and our government and political system, the U.S. is pretty secure. We are on the offensive against Russia and China for all practical purposes. It was a reverse in the 60s. Mm. 
and the monotony of the Eisenhower administration provided an opening for John Kennedy in particular. Uh, we need a more assertive, more exciting government. He collapsed the Eisenhower committee system into a much leaner NSC. Hmm. And there's a lot to be said for that, I think. But um, uh, Kennedy wanted to be involved in foreign policy. It wasn't monotonous at all. As we all know, with hindsight, it became very exciting. He, he picked McGeorge Bundy, a um, very youthful dean of the faculty at Harvard University, who was only around 40, like the president himself. And Bundy was a more visible figure. He wasn't the publicity hound like Kissinger. Mm. But these people tended to be more well-defined and media conscious. And Kennedy, to his credit, much like Nixon, they had been friends when they were in Congress in the 50s. Mm. They went to Cuba together without their wives in the 50s. You know, the odd couple. <laughs> it's fascinating. Anyway, I can wow. go on and on. But um, after all the problems of the 60s, there was an effort to make, make a larger structure under um, Kissinger. Bundy was an advocate. The record's clear on Vietnam especially. He and others at the top were advocating intervention in 65. But generally, he saw the job as advising the president and doing so privately. And Kissinger really, given his talents and... Uh, I think it's fair to say genius in the policy area and in uh, um, foreign policy generally. Uh, he really became an active implementer of policy. The Secretary of State was sidelined by mm. design. Nixon did not trust a lot of people. He didn't trust the State Department. And Bill Rogers, the Secretary of State, who in fact was a friend of Nixon's, a Washington lawyer type, mm. more than a policy person. Um, Nixon and Kissinger quite ruthlessly sidelined him and the State Department. It was a great meeting of the minds. The advisor has been important, and I'll stop with this, because uh, the president needs someone he can trust and someone who reflects what he or she, I carefully add, <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be true soon, what they want. And uh, Eisenhower is sizable and, in hindsight, brilliantly run large NSC staff, Kennedy's more flexible approach. Kennedy and Bundy were very professionally, not personally. They're very, very similar in their style at work. Um, Walt Rostow and LBJ, and it, it goes on. It's become, continued to be a visible position because the president is so much involved in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And the way it's involved, it's the president's man or woman and remains rather visible. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. And, Hen and Henry Kissinger played a really big role in, yeah, unique, in what I that think. role is now. Yeah, yeah uni unique in terms of policy implementation. I, uh, and, they, and they were remarkably effective in a very turbulent time. Man, the, the Republicans, in fairness to Nixon and Kissinger, they walked into a mess in Washington in 1969. And right. I'll stop there. This is turning into the academic lecture that I... I try to avoid here. I think it's fascinating stuff. Uh, I am reminded as you're talking about uh, Kissinger and Nixon and how they work together, uh, a moment from a interview that I shared in the podcast over the weekend uh, because of Kissinger's death was an interview with historian Neil Ferguson, ah, yes. who uh, did a long interview with uh, Henry Kissinger that was... Uh, uh, transformed into a really fine documentary uh, for National Geographic, as a matter of fact. 
And uh, one of the things that came up in our conversation was how, and one of the things you hear in this documentary is uh, excerpts from some of the phone conversations and other private conversations between Kissinger and Nixon and just how different they sounded from each other and just the way they expressed themselves, the way they used language. uh, uh, I mean, they they just sounded like they were cut from very different cloth in a lot of different ways, and yet... In, in many other ways, of course, they were kindred spirits and, and uh, probably saw the world the same or had many of the same values. And it was just fascinating to me to think that, I mean, sometimes when we think about a good team, we think about like thing one and thing two in the Dr. Seuss book, I mean, I mean who are almost indistinguishable from each yeah. other. And some effective teams, uh, the dissimilarities are an important part of the chemistry that makes yes, that indeed. teamwork work. Yeah, human relations are endlessly fascinating, as Shakespeare and so many others have pointed out. And I think one of the most insidious uh, aspects of policy making, especially foreign policy at that time, but domestic as well, is that we can quantify things. We can use statistics. We can use quantitative analysis to handle and analyze policy. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger were too uh, intelligent and too able to be seduced by that. But it uh, became quite dominant during the Kennedy and Johnson years. And it continues, um, in the, certainly in the private sector, but also in government. Right. I find it quite, uh, quite uh, I, I don't like it. Yeah. One other thing about Kissinger I think we should talk about, and by the way, we could, we could endlessly debate all kinds of specific points oh. about the policies that he put forward and so on. But By uh, all means, yeah, let's well, do so. <laughs> right. That would eat up the time, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, no, I actually wanted to ask you about something else. You lose listeners quickly. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, uh, your column mentions some of the essentials of, of Mr. Kissinger's background, including yeah. where he was born and raised and the fact that uh, he and his parents uh, fled Nazi Germany, I think, in 1938, and yeah. he, he fought for us in World War Absolutely. II and, and, and so on. Absolutely, as, I, did, as did Nixon. Right. Absolutely. I, I just wonder, uh, the circumstances of Kissinger's early life, uh, I wonder, what is your sense in terms of the man he became, and in particular the the, the, the kinds of things that he did on behalf of our country, how much of that do you think was shaped by that early experience of oh, fleeing all, Nazi Germany and so on? Of course. We're all, Nixon and Kissinger were both outsiders um, economically. They started out with no advantages uh, and doing homework, scrambling to do homework for this column. I learned Kissinger sold, um, uh, he was going to school, and then in free time he would sell shaving brushes in the streets of New York City, a classic wow. immigrant study. And then he would study at night and, mm. of course, did extremely well. But they were both outsiders. Foreign policy is the preserve of the upper class, the aristocracy, the elite mm. in other countries and historically and to a profound degree. And until Vietnam, the upper class uh, very much ran foreign policy. They populated the Foreign Service, uh, very decent men from not only the Ivy League, but also old money and prep schools and even the social register. Lots of exceptions to that. Um, Bundy was the the uh, personification of Boston Brahmin, but Bob McNamara grew up in Oakland, California, 
uh, lower middle class family. Dean Russ grew up in the Secretary of State. McNamara was the Defense Secretary then. The um, Secretary of State was a man I admire a lot, Mr. Rusk. He was from poverty in Georgia. Wow. Uh, but the rank and file and most senior people, Dean Atchison um, and the Truman Administration, Cordell Hull, through most of uh, FDR's tenure, it tended to be the old upper class. And Nixon and Kissinger were outsiders. And there was inherent insecurity and inherent drive, but also appreciation for being in the United States of America. Classic patriotism, which I applaud. I'd like to see the American flag more including on uh, college and university websites nowadays. Mm. And they both personified that. There's tr they had to fight against a lot of opposition and maneuver. Uh, Nixon was seen as the, the outsider. Eisenhower picked him carefully as vice president. But there was always resentment among the old financial elite in the Republican Party, which got Ike the nomination in 52. You know, he's this plebeian from the orange groves in California. We really mm -hmm. should be having good old Nelson Rockefeller, who's a member of the club at mm -hmm. the top. <laughs> We're a lot more egalitarian today, and because we are, we tend to overlook, even in serious studies, these um, uh, important social distinctions, especially in the Republican Party, right. but in the Democratic as well. Sure. The old Southern aristocracy versus people coming up in the South. Yeah. Uh, Neil Ferguson did a book on Kissinger, which I recommend, and a very good obituary hmm. on Kissinger. Um, I can't remember where I saw it. It may have been the Wall Street Journal or it may have been the Atlantic Council website, but look him up. Hmm. His first name is N-I-A-L-L, I, -L -L, I right. think. That's right, N-I-A-L-L, -L, Neil yeah. Ferguson. And, and yes, he was actually hard at work on that biography when he did these extensive yeah. uh, interviews uh, that ultimately were, were, were the fuel for this fascinating documentary. <clears throat> exactly. That uh, once in a while still shows up on the National Geographic channel. Yeah, no, he's, he's a very serious person. He's also very much a media operator, but he is, he's a serious uh, writer and scholar. Absolutely. It's well worth your time. Mm -hmm. For those of you just joining us, we are spending today's morning show with uh, Dr. Art Seer who visits us quite frequently on the morning show, and we've just now been talking uh, about uh, the recent uh, uh, death of Henry Kissinger at the age of 100, and uh, his complex life and legacy is explored in Professor Sears' most recent column, which should be appearing in newspapers this week. Maybe we can just drop in uh, at least a brief mention of, uh, of another uh, recent death, that of former First Lady uh, Rosalind Carter. Yep. I don't know if you had the opportunity to, to watch any of, of the, the services that were on television and so on, but I found myself profoundly moved uh, well, by, by what was, uh, by what was <clears throat> said uh, about her and her, her dedication and, and spirit of, of, of service. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about uh, Rosalind Carter. Uh, well, sure. I... I first became aware of Jimmy Carter when I was in the Army. I spent some time at Fort Benning, Georgia in the early 70s going through the infantry officers' school, hmm. the basic course. I, my branch was intelligence, but part of that is you had to go through the, um, this particular infantry training. The, and he was the governor. And um, I was and am very much a northerner, although <laughs> the Ar U.S. Army is a southern institution, and it was a tremendous education for me. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, on a big army base, there's not a lot to do unless you're really into various vices, bluntly. <laughs> and I watched TV a fair amount, and it was not a very happy time for our country or for me. <clears throat> and Carter that was the governor at the time, and he was this remarkably intelligent, um, articulate leader, and I became tremendously impressed by him, and I, I supported him personally in 76, and I still do in many ways. You know, it's very much a mixed um, blessing and mixed bag as president, but I was profoundly impressed by his integrity and his commitment to public service. He and his wife were close partners, very close. She came to cabinet meetings, which was a source of some alarm by the <laughs> media and others, and I thought that was all very silly. Uh, I don't believe she, unlike, say, Mrs. Reagan, she did not interject herself into personnel and personality matters, but they were very much a team, and he would send her. I did take a look at his autobiography as I was scrambling around mm-hmm. early this morning, sir, <laughs> and um, after I got your email. And he would send her, as well as his mother, overseas to uh, the tremendous pressures of the presidency or something he emphasizes. And they're certainly there. Every minute counted, he said. So he would use both her and his mother, which I think is fine. Hmm. It's a very Christian thing to do, and he was a very dedicated Christian, although some purists objected about diplomatic protocol. But they were truly a team and work together in everything. Uh, First ladies often um, have a separate existence or a distinctive existence, Betty Ford and substance abuse. Eleanor Roosevelt had a separate Mm -hmm. and very complimentary career. But with um, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, it was very much a close team, very dedicated Mm -hmm. and very impressive to me, just phenomenal. Yeah. And speaking of impressive, I, I, I must admit that I just find so profoundly moving the, the sight of, you know, for instance, every living first lady yes. sitting in the same pew and, and with a couple of their husbands there as well. But, I mean, as, as a mark of, of, of respect and appreciation for all that yes. uh, Mrs. Carter uh, did on behalf of our nation. Yes, absolutely. In another recent column... You actually look back at uh, at John F. Kennedy, oh. and uh, the the occasion, of course, was the 60th anniversary of the tragic tragic events in in Dallas. And uh, one of the interesting things in this in this column is uh, at one point you quote the uh, veteran uh, CBS journalist Eric Severide, yes. saying uh, apparently this is something he said not too long after Kennedy's assassination that that most likely. Kennedy's most uh, significant legacy will be one of attitude that, I mean, just kind of the general spirit of optimism and so on that he helped to to engender. And uh, it's clear from your column that you agree with that and that you think that's important. But you spend some time in your column, you're making us understand that Kennedy was a whole lot more than just a confidence builder, that in fact... Uh, there are some substantial things that he managed to achieve in his brief oh, presidency. Yeah. Um, he got us through the Cuban Missile Crisis. His blunder, at the, and I, it's it's not uh, excessive or unfair, his blunder at the Bay of Pigs, and publicly he agreed with that. Uh, he took, took the blame and did not point fingers in the usual Washington way. 
And I think that's admirable. He learned a lot. He was a very quick study. And after the Bay of Pigs disaster, which is one of the big failures in American foreign policy and history, during the missile crisis, uh, his missteps helped encourage Nikita Khrushchev to take the terrible risk of putting long-range nuclear missiles into mm -hmm. Cuba. And Kennedy, it was t terrifying at the time. But the more we learn, the more we realize just how close it was. Mm. If, if Kennedy had given in to this enormous pressure, he stood alone uh, among his advisors, not just against the military brass, but just about everybody wanted to invade Cuba right away with such a huge uh, departure from the status quo. And we know now if we'd invaded, there would have been a nuclear war. And I can expand on that, but it's, uh, he's, that was definitely a great president when it really counted then. But we also have the Peace Corps, which many laughed at at the time, and mm. is tremendously durable and a great positive force in the world and also the, rights, the right positive image for the U.S. Um, the nuclear test ban treaty of 63 was a direct result of the missile crisis and his and Khrushchev's agreement to let's collaborate to make sure we don't have this kind of thing happen again. Um, important um, trade authority, which resulted in the Kennedy-Tokyo and Uruguay rounds trade liberalization, the foundation for this steady expansion of globalization today. Much to the consternation of Democratic <laughs> Party liberals, he insisted that the communication satellite corporation be a private corporation mm. chartered by the government, but they've got to be private, uh, which was quite uh, a real departure from the status quo of that time, not just in the Democratic Party. And that laid the foundation for um, the tremendous vital role of private industry, spearheaded by the always interesting Leon, um, Elon, Elon Musk, and interesting and brilliant and effective business executive. And I could go on and on. Uh, and his, his wife, as well as Mrs. Johnson, gave great emphasis to um, beautification of the country. Um, in the case of Mrs. Kennedy, uh, high tone to culture. Mm. Again, after the monotony of the 50s, it was what a lot of people wanted. Mm. And she was a very distinctive personality in terms of style. Mm. I hope this is clear, uh, but he, um, I'm old enough to remember that time. and. Uh, it was quite inspiring, although President Kennedy also was struggling with a lot of problems and um, a lot of challenges at the time he was murdered. He sure. went to Texas because it wasn't at all, he didn't want to go, but it wasn't at all clear he was going to get reelected in 64. Mm. He only became the great hero for a while after his horrible death, but uh, the Texas Democratic Party is not where he wanted to spend his time. Right. But it was, it was going to be close. We did... Um, it's, as I keep returning to, because it's important, public insults, uh, sleaze, public, what we have is a public obsession with sex and sleaze today, <laughs> and denigrating public figures. That was not part of that earlier time. And I think he and his wife reinforced the importance of a positive outlook on public policy and the world. Mm. I hope that's clear. Yeah. yeah thank you for asking yeah. about him. And, and I, I really loved... Uh, in a sense, kind of the closing thought of your column, um, which uh, 
and I can't remember who you were quoting. Somebody was Galbraith. Yes, I think Kenneth. Yeah. John, Kenneth John Kenneth Galbraith uh, was was in some sort of press conference or Q and A or something. Was asked about uh, John F. Kennedy, and you describe him kind of brightening at that point yeah. and uh, and saying uh, Jack Kennedy was the most curious, questioning person uh, I have ever met. Kennedy made you think. Yeah. Actually, I think I don't. I can't tell if those are Galbraith's words or your words at the end. Kennedy made you think. Well, that was my phrase, but okay. Galbraith that crystallizes what Galbraith said. Yes, he's pretty much forgotten today. It's interesting. He was very prominent publicly in the fifties and sixties and thereafter, uh, a public intellectual, which we don't really have in the same way anymore. He was a very prominent Harvard professor who wrote a book called The Affluent Society in the 50s. We've got to start paying attention to the poor in this country. They're kind of, um, they're, they're kind of ignored mm. in the current environment. Mm. And uh, uh, Kennedy made, who, who was surrounded by intellectuals, great and small, Kennedy made him ambassador to India where he was very successful. He was a very tall man and very imperious at Harvard and elsewhere. And we would get him at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations regularly. He would always draw, draw a very large crowd. Uh, he was a rather monotonous speaker, but very interesting, but very imperious. Mm. I used to tell our hardworking, small, mostly young staff at the council that remember, um, in this business, we deal with the great, the near great, and the ingrate. <laughs> and also that uh, think of him as the poor man's Charles de Gaulle. Mm. And that's the way it was. Uh, but when I mentioned Kennedy at this small dinner, which were important for us for fundraising, there'd be a big lecture, and then hmm. we would very carefully plan these smaller events, uh, he really became animated. Hmm. And it really brought home to me personally how JFK impacted people. Right. Was, yeah, for, for a minute, he became a regular guy hmm. and, and really, really um, friendly. Huh. Interesting. Well, the importance of leadership. Yeah. Isn't it in, interpersonal leadership? Right. Well, and beyond that, I think even if one is not a, you know, necessarily a leader of any kind, just lifting up the quality of curiosity. Yeah. That Kennedy. I mean, when Mr. Galbraith thought back to Kennedy, I mean, the first thing that he said was how incredibly curious Kennedy was, yeah. curious and questioning, and so on. I'm reminded of a moment from the show Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've ever seen this uh, this show about a no. an American soccer coach who's coaching in Britain and no. kind of a fish out of water, uh, a real <laughs> down-home uh, attitude and so on, but, but who achieves amazing success despite the doubts of everybody around him. And there's a, a, a really interesting scene in which someone has very arrogantly challenged him to a game of darts and uh, just assuming that this bumbling American is doesn't know anything about ah. darts, and as uh, and as he's throwing these darts with a surgeon's precision, this character <laughs> Ted Lasso says, um, "You know, I've been underestimated all my life and was bullied a lot when I was young, and I, I don't know. At some point, I figured out that those bullies they weren't curious about me; they just wanted to judge me. Yeah. And and then he quoted Walt Whitman. I don't know if it's correct or not, but he supposedly Walt Whitman said, be curious, not judgmental. Yeah. 
and and uh, those power and then and then at that moment, boom, he hits the bullseye and you know decisively wins this this darts match. But I mean, what stays with me is this this idea that you know maybe one of the cures to the ugly times that you talk about in two different columns actually yeah. that maybe one of the keys out of that highly divisive judgmental place we find ourselves right now is to try to foster more genuine curiosity about yeah. each other uh, I mean about the people on the other side of the aisle and why do they think the way they do or do the things they do or talk the way they do um, and and anybody who embodies the power of curiosity it seems to me is Really giving us a, an important human lesson. Yeah. What's the other person's point of view? Right. Crucial to success and business and every other aspect of life. Absolutely. And it's the antithesis of focusing just on the numbers and just on the data. Right. And thinking that you're superior because sure. you have greater skill in this area than others. Right. Or or just gravitating to your kind of immediate gut reaction to something yeah. that's different and you know maybe not 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 your idea of how things should be so well i'm glad it had such a positive impact yeah. on you i must say this is really interesting listening to you yeah. so uh curiosity is uh is is needs to be king or queen uh, uh needs to be more a part of our lives for those of you just joining us we have with us in the studios uh, Dr. Art Sear joining us to talk about a host of different uh, things and um um, I don't think we have a lot of time to touch on this, but I, I do want to acknowledge the beautiful column you wrote about uh, our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, and his connection to the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I think this is something you, you actually have, have, have rightly written about before because it's, it's really, really important. But, yeah. but among other things, uh, you know, as you are talking about about Mr. Lincoln and his his legacy, uh, I think what the it seems to me the central point you were making is that Lincoln, for pursuing these transcendently important goals of reuniting our country, uh, was you you say um, someone with astonishing political skills. I mean, so he had to wed the practical yeah. with these huge ideas. Uh, that would seem almost impossible to achieve. So I, I, I guess I appreciated your appreciation of Mr. Lincoln because we sometimes think of him kind of simplistically. Yeah, no, nor maybe our most complicated pres- president and endlessly <laughs> complex and a little hard to grasp in full. Sarah Josepha Hale was the editor of Godey's Ladies Book, G.O. <laughs> D-O-Y, I think, or G-O-D-E-Y, which was really big in those days, G-O-D-E-Y, ladies' book, and it was nationally very important to women and the home. She had written a number of presidents over many years asking for Thanksgiving, so she she should get the credit. Hmm. On October 3, 1963, the White House issued the Thanksgiving Proclamation. Lincoln finally implemented it declaring the last Thursday of November to be a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. The proclamation also requested, quote, the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore peace, harmony, and union. He linked it to his consistent goal of reintegrating the South, 
let's keep in mind we're one nation mm-hmm. and we've got to put behind eventually put behind us bitterness and this tremendous hatred between north and south um by the fall of 63 finally the union was clearly starting to win after years of losing the battle of gettysburg in pennsylvania was the last time a very large confederate army was able to invade the north and at the same time grant took vicksburg this crucial uh, port city on the mississippi river after months of maneuvering battle it's a phenomenal and brilliant and mind-boggling exercise in strategic genius and at that point as um someone said in in uh, victorian fashion the great mississippi now flows unvexed to the sea unvexed from that point <laughs> on it was clear that the confederacy was finished for those who were serious and focused on the details in the fall of 1962 when we were mostly losing in the east at least uh there was a victory at antietam the union army it was inconclusive but the union army remained in charge of the field and after that battle uh lincoln issued the emancipation proclamation which is a very complicated legal exercise not at all emotional hmm. you you call it a dry document <laughs> yeah a legal document dealing with property which might be offensive to us today but lincoln used it to free the slaves in the south the war was no longer just about national union, but about the moral issue of slavery. And um, he left the North alone. Constitutionally, he had no authority. Confiscation Acts passed in 1862 by Congress, driven by the White House, uh, authorized Union forces to seize Confederate property. And African Americans were defined as property, all of which might seem quite crude to us today. But Lincoln was dealing with a mind-boggling mm array of competing forces, including in Washington. And it was a brilliant way. Uh, I urge people to look into it because it's too complicated to really explain on the radio. It was a brilliant way for him to develop cohesion in the North and make the war about moral issues above Mm. all else, while not alienating the border states, which were crucial, including his own Kentucky and Illinois, which is not a border state, but Southern Illinois almost left during the um, mm. first part of the Civil War uh, without antagonizing these people who were neutral or pro-slavery in the North. Just a phenomenal exercise. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, I mean, he really was, a, he had to be a genius. It's just extraordinary how he was able to juggle so many ideas and competing forces brilliantly. Right. Yeah, no, don't underestimate this man. Mm. We In our cynical time, there's a... A school of younger uh, historians in the U.S. who are now very down on Lincoln and feel the radical Republicans are the force that really should have prevailed during the Civil War. Utterly absurd to Mm. me, quite understandable given the temper of our times, but really look into Lincoln. Mm. You'll learn a lot. It'll help you in your daily life. It'll help you deal with your own problems. Just an amazing carry. It's almost like divine intervention that we had this guy when we really needed him. Right, yeah. When, we, when things were really bad for us Americans. Absolutely. Yeah. Really bad. Thank goodness he was... He yeah, was... thank God. <laughs> Be thankful, yes. Um, we have just a, a couple of minutes to touch on something that, that was quite eye-opening to me. 
uh, a recent column you wrote about uh, President Biden meeting with the leader of China. And, uh, and in writing about this, uh, this important meeting, uh, you tell us, in effect, that China's economy is really experiencing some, some serious challenges on, it sounds like, on a whole lot of different fronts. And uh, it sounds like maybe at the heart of it is j- just the fact that, that, that China is trying to uh, engage in capitalism while retaining you know, the kind of the strict uh, controls of, of a communist dictatorship. And so it's, right. so it's like a strange marriage, maybe doomed from the start. But uh, just how rough is the, ch- the China's economy uh, right now? There's a lot of turbulence and turmoil in the economy because, as you you said, you summed it up. They're trying to have the benefits of a capitalist economy since 1992, and Deng Xiaoping's declaration of people's socialism. They've been mm-hmm. working very effectively to, to draw foreign investment, and there's a tremendous amount of capital still in China, but it's fleeing. There are masses of young people, uh, including dang- inherently dangerous young men, who just can't find work massive youth unemployment. Mm. A housing bubble has collapsed. We know about that um, in the West, given the financial crash of a decade ago. Um, lots of bad loans, lots of corruption. Uh, they, they execute people who are found guilty of corruption in China quite readily, but uh, it speaks volumes on the nature of their system. But they're finding it very unmanageable. To, uh, uh, Xi Jinping is a very dedicated fanatical communist and an egomaniac. He's put himself in the Constitution recently. Think of how humiliating it is for him to go all the way to a suburb of San Francisco to meet with um, capitalist President Joe Biden. Hmm. And so at some level, it was a, a rather degrading exercise, but they've got to maintain collaboration with the U.S., and I think it's great, given the fact the deterioration of relations. I think the Biden administration and predecessors deserve credit for uh, pursuing a range of economic and military alliances that, uh, in a much more, much larger and more complicated geographic space, that in many ways are like the alliance systems mm-hmm. and. Uh, economic agreements that we put in place to contain the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Right. But it's, you know, it's the larger train of history, as Kissinger might say. The Soviet Union is gone. Uh, Japan was supposed to be taking over the world a few decades ago. Mm. They're still there, fortunately, but no longer are seen as a competitor to the U.S. And the same thing is happening in China. Wow. One thing you say about the Biden administration uh, is that uh, and, and in contrast to the Trump administration, you say that, that the Biden administration, when it comes to China at least, is engaging in what you call serious, methodical diplomacy. Yeah. I mean, versus, you know, kind of a slapdash, <clears throat> uh, headline-making approach. I mean, it's hard work behind the scenes trying to forge exactly the connection that we want with China. Yeah, uh, one of our outstanding graduates, um, an advisee of mine, Christina Wright, who has become, she's not a foreign service officer. She's a contract employee of the federal government, but is, has now years of experience on um, working with the State Department primarily on the Organization of American States with the, in the UN. <coughs> she's zoomed in 
thanks to my colleague Jeff Roberg in political science, mm. a few weeks ago, and she talked about um, the continuity of policy. Even She was talking off the record to students. Uh, she said even in the more orderly, normal state of affairs in Washington or the chaos of the Trump years, uh, policy tends to be continuous. And in terms of um, uh, guarding strategic technology against China and punishing Chinese um, uh, commercial espionage and industrial espionage, there's a lot of continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Well, I appreciated all that I learned about uh, the state of affairs in China. It's it's amazing how little we read about that in mainstream media. I mean, they're yeah. obviously a, a really significant presence in the world. And uh, so anyway, I, I appreciated you taking the time oh, sure. to, to, to write about that. And, and they, they are consistently becoming very more and more aggressive concerning territorial expansion in Asia. Um, by no means am I trying to say that they're not a, a menace and an irritant and in important ways a danger to the United States, all the more reason why <coughs> Biden and Xi got together. And they had practical arrangements where the Biden administration, I believe, has had some notable successes in the world um, and focus on these things because the president himself, given his age and limitations in terms of media skill at this point, uh, takes a lot of heat. Mm. I, I uh, don't underestimate him. Mm. In terms of the next election, <laughs> uh, Biden and Xi agreed, as the article mentions, on drug and law enforcement cooperation, oh, yeah. which is their weakness gives them an incentive to pursue this, and also high-level military discussions, which were terminated within the last few years, are that both militaries are going to start talking to each other again, hmm. which is extremely positive and important. Great. Well, it's nice to have positive things to uh, to talk about and to appreciate. Uh, and I'm afraid uh, time has gotten away from us, so we will not have time today for to give you a chance to weigh in on the ouster of George Santos oh, from the U.S. House oh, of Representatives. What a shame. <laughs> okay. Well, I would be curious to hear what you have to say, but that will have to wait for another time. Well, and, uh, maybe next time. <laughs> I'll be back. Thanks uh, right. to you. I, bl- I will be back. Thanks to you. I'll be back. Very good. We look forward to it. Uh, Dr. Artsir joining us today here on The Morning Show. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise. Thank you, my friend. Tomorrow on The Morning Show, I look forward to a conversation with